0: Today, we have Danny Lee, who's with Databricks, probably one of the hottest companies in the whole new age AI field. Um, we're going to share with you in our discussion just what the progression of AI has been and add also that if you have database skills, you have relevance in today's world of information and data. Welcome, Danny.
1: Thank you very much for uh, letting me join you guys. This, it's pretty awesome.
0: Thank you for joining us. Yeah, so
2: give us a little bit about, you know, how you ended up in Databricks and a little bit, you know, elevator pitch on how you got to be here.
1: Oh, no problem. quick
2: for our listeners.
1: Absolutely. So to give us some context, um, my background is I was originally part of the SQL customer advisory team at Microsoft. Um, I would work with some of the largest enterprises. Uh, that we're using SQL Server, Um, equivalent to what we would term probably as an RSA right now, a resident solution architect. I was post-sales. I would work with some of the largest uh, data warehousing and OLTP um, and uh, analytics um, customers. Uh, One of my cool projects was that I was with... um, I helped Yahoo create the largest uh, analysis services cube on the planet Uh, The source of that cube was uh, one of the largest uh, Hadoop instances in the world, uh, at the time at least, uh, at Yahoo, and uh, we had built uh, a 24 terabyte analysis service cube, which it literally was the largest cube. So from there, uh, I realized I no longer wanted to build cubes, and so... (laughs) basically dove into the world of Hadoop and spark um, uh, in my past before I joined SQL server I was actually part of Bing so I had already worked with distributed systems anyways and so became a huge fan of uh, Hadoop and spark um, spark I'd been involved since uh, it's 0.5 days uh, so I had talked to the what now are the uh, uh, a lot of the creators of Apache spark which is now the, the a lot of them are the founders of databricks and so through my progression, I was able to join them and they were silly enough to let me join. So it's pretty awesome. Um, what was great about this progression, it allowed me to work with real world scenarios on uh, complicated data systems, whether you call it data sciences or data engineering or database, but in the end, these are data problems, right? You, you, you have business problems that involve data and no matter what the tool or what the technology, it was about going ahead and making sure you could go ahead and solve the problem, right, for that business. And that's why Databricks is so cool because what it comes down to is that we simplify how you go ahead and solve those data problems, uh, with whether it's the workspace, whether it's uh, managing Apache Spark, uh, things of that nature. And so hence uh, I'm part of Databricks and pretty happy to be here.
2: And how far has it come? I mean, you know, Hadoop and Spark early days, in my opinion, uh, they were simple technologies, but badly needed, and that's why it scaled so much. But how far has it come? How, how much a, and how much a surprise of that is it to you?
1: I, it's come a long way. We te- we. I think we still have a lot more to do to make it easier to work with. So from that standpoint, we're still early on, right? That that's why we created Databricks because it was to make to simplify the management of these technologies when you're dealing with distributed systems, it can be difficult. And what you really want is you want your data scientists, your data practitioners, data engineers to be focusing on the actual data problems, not to be focusing on the infrastructure problems. And I feel from a tech perspective, you know, we've uh, Apache Spark has gone a long way. We're about to release Apache Spark 3.0 as the timing of this particular podcast. Um, we're planning for the Q round Q1, Q2 of uh, 2020 to tar- for the target release of Apache Spark 3.0. And so we're doing some really great progression to make things simpler, more extendable. Um, so I, I think we've done a lot. I think there's still more to do, right? The, the technology is still not necessarily accessible to everybody. But, um, and so we we are trying our best to be extremely helpful on that front, right? And I and I don't mean we as in just data breaks, by the way. I mean we as in the uh, Spark and data communities, for that matter, right? Uh, whether it's you know uh, deep learning, machine learning libraries, things of that nature, the the community in general are trying to find ways to make this technology more accessible. So that way, again, we're focusing on the data problems, not focusing on the infrastructure
0: problems. I think you've discerned. Some similar dynamics with data professionals or people who have worked with databases, and they may have some kind of mental hurdle in terms of applying their knowledge and their experience to AI or machine learning as it's coming up strong and fast.
1: Oh, absolutely. Right. So if, if you look at the traditional sense of the Python based data scientist, let's we'll just start from that angle first, right? Uh, this person. Uh, understands algorithms quite well, or even if uh, he or she does not understand algorithms that well, they certainly know how to apply them well, right? Uh, And then they can, they understand the domain space decently enough. They understand the business problems and they're able to apply that algorithm to get some really cool predictive outputs. You know, whether it's a machine learning algorithm or it's a deep deep learning algorithm or whatever it may be, um, even simple statistics, right? They're able to discern something from the data. Uh, but from a data and engineering perspective, the, the problem is, is actually, as you alluded to, is that can you get that data clean in a form that's actually accessible to the said data scientist? Can you, it, When you're going into production, can you ensure that the schemas don't change? Can you ensure that as the data is coming in, that you it's con- done in a consistent manner? Uh, can you deal with both streaming scenarios and batch scenarios concurrently? Um, there's all these other questions that come into play that makes it really interesting. And so we're the <clears throat> traditional data engineer uh, who, who comes from like, you know, whether it's a SQL background for the the you know old school DBAs like myself, or you're talking about the newer uh, school, like, you know, we're using Java or Scala um, data engineers, right? How, how do we make sure that we can bind those two worlds together. And part of the reason why I'm excited to talk about the the open source project Delta Lake is precisely because of that. That allows us to bridge that gap between the input sources that you have to ensure that you actually have reliable data, such that when it's time for us to run our machine learning algorithms or SQL analytics for that matter, you actually have reliable data to query against. And, was that a plug
2: uh, I heard there? What was the uh, what was the open source project you just mentioned?
1: Oh, it's a plug for Delta Lake, the open source oh, project right. Delta Lake. Yes.
2: And then, uh, and you've been doing a lot of uh, advocate. I mean, actually, advocates in your title, I believe now.
1: That's so, correct.
2: Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> how much of of that is of things like I know you had a a PySpark book and you did a talk on AutoML uh, toolkit and. Um, how much of it is related to Databricks, and how much of it is related to just data science and data in general for you?
1: In this case, it's actually both. That, that's what's great, of, and, that, and, and that's why I can tell you, all, you know, wholeheartedly why I love my job. Because there, in my case, it, I, I have what I'm saying is me, and it happens to be also very much Databricks at the exact same time. Because in, in the end, like you know, just like you called out, like I've, uh, help uh, co-write a. PySpark book. I'm also helping to co-write a, a, the second edition of, Lear, of the Learning Spark book as, as well, um, and have sessions on AutoML or object detection, for that matter. <laughs> right? They, they seem to sound like they're running all over the place, but th- there is an underlying component, which is no matter how good your algorithms are, it is dependent on how good your data is. Right. And so this is where that data engineer or the Delta Lake component becomes so important for me because It's about ensuring that you actually have reliable data to work with in the first place before i can run my auto ml before i can run my object detection all these other cool things that i I love playing with i have to make sure my data is reliable and and so so it's easy for me to talk about this stuff because it it, it's i'd be talking about it whether i was in databricks or not right in fact i was (laughs) Uh, before i returned to databricks i'm actually one of those weird ones who was a boomerang uh, I was actually at Microsoft as well, and so uh, I, I'm actually a three-time Microsofter. That's a whole different story altogether. But um, even during my time at Microsoft, I was pretty much talking about those same problems. I wasn't necessarily talking about Delta Lake per se, but in terms of what the problems were and why you needed something akin to what Delta Lake solves, you still had those problems, and 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 it was crucial that they got uh, those were fixed or resolved or worked around. So that way you can actually put your data engineering pipelines or data science pipelines um, into production.
2: And it sounds like you have a lot of practical approach, but you started off in biomed, is that, is that true, biomed technology? And it sounds like you did three terms in Microsoft. So how does that academic transition occur? Did you ever envision yourself being so entrenched in the world of uh, data as you are now in data science?
1: That's a great question. In fact, no, I I did not. Um, uh, In terms of, did I think what did I think I was going to be originally? I completely thought I was going to be an academic or a doctor, right? You know, again, the running joke being I'm Asian, so I was supposed to be a doctor, right? I I had it in my mind that I would be a doctor. Um, The if I was to touch computers, the closest thing I would do was um, maybe because I was doing an MD PhD, that type of mentality i.e. research associated so i came very much uh with the mentality that i would go into the academic background it, it was through um interesting enough like uh, just to pull something from the past uh when i decided that i would go ahead and try to um co-run a now defunct uh web advertising company during the time when webs uh was just uh, a burgeoning concept you know html was a burgeoning concept uh that i realized i like business as well and so it, that was when I started making that turn. Um, and so, because of that turn, then that's when I initially had joined Microsoft as a contractor and then realized that there was really fun and cool to merge the the two worlds of of, um, of business and technology. And that you you could use actually the technology to help solve some pretty cool problems. I actually haven't run away from academia, though. Uh, I actually still work with various academic institutions uh, in research, um, specifically in genomics and healthcare in general, um, just because I, I think the technology can be very applicable for um, personalized medicine. Uh, but that that's I'm doing a slight digression on that one. but in on the intern in the intern at the same time, even for that particular hobby of mine of you know personalized medicine and genomics, the reality is that, it, exactly what I just said. Uh, before I can go ahead and worry about applying any machine learning algorithm to this, I need to make sure my data is stable first.
0: Now, for your early days at Microsoft, did you get the benefit of accessing a lot of data um, early on in your career?
1: I, I think that's a great question. In fact, yes, I was very fortunate to, to do that. So Uh, Even during my contracting years, uh, when I first started off, I was working uh, uh, with Encarta, uh, basically to, we were trying to figure out how to ensure the, um, make Encarta at the time the top, um, you know, uh, online encyclopedia, uh, or digital encyclopedia, excuse me. Um, From there, um, one of my turns, I was to return to Bing, and so that means we're dealing with all the Bing technology data, right? You know, whether it's Hotmail, Bing search, things of MSN, things of that nature. So yeah, we're processing a ton of data. And in fact, a a sort of funny interlude on this one is that I ended up finishing my master's in uh, biomedical informatics, um, where we actually are applying privacy algorithms to patient data to ensure the privacy of patients as we're doing an analysis on them uh, using uh, differential privacy. So I, I had been working uh, on this uh, back in the early 2000s, and what was cool about it is that, uh, and why I'm relating this back to Bing is that w- that's actually how we uh, one of the tests that I end up doing, which is we are applying those privacy-preserving histograms uh, against Bing data, right? Uh, can we go ahead and ensure the privacy of the Bing users while we're doing analysis against that data? So early on, yeah, I mean uh, the constructs of or the necessity of distributed data systems was right there because of my uh, uh, because of my time at Microsoft, and definitely enjoyed it.
0: Was there a specific data problem that turned the switch for you, where you really saw your future as being tied to it?
1: Yeah, I, I think in my case, it was really just down to web analytics. As boring as that sounds, it just it seemed that at least, especially at the time, right, you know, basically, Web Analytics, it was was involved with everything, it was the forefront of where technology was going to go, whether, you know, in terms of how you had to do distributed systems, or, you know, at the time, Hadoop, Pig, you know, Hive, those technologies, right, we, we, the precursors to them, they were all based on us trying to solve the massive amount of data around Web Analytics, and I think the the idea of something that involved the, sh- the sheer volume and sheer size um, that, that Bing was uh, and needing to go ahead and fix that and actually figure that out. Uh, so it was a complicated problem.
2: Is, is an enormous amount of data required in order to create, you know, for instance, an accurate model? I always get the impression that there's this... Uh, myth around here that you have to use enormous amounts of data, big data essentially to create accurate because um, we are an AI podcast, uh, an accurate machine. <laughs> uh, but really it's just more about having representative data, quality data and all that all that. So it you know where does the intersection and the myth, where is it true and where does Databricks and these other you know ecosystem tools you're so familiar with come into play?
1: So, okay. No, I, I, you're, it's not even, to me, it's not even a double to have a question you just asked, right? That's completely true, right? There are some scenarios where having a small sample size where with representative data, that's completely cool and you're good to go. And there's no reason you actually need to go to big data, especially when you're trying to get general, like general ideas or general uh, trends to the data. You don't necessarily need to look at all the data, but it, where you do need to look at it, and, and the reason I was bringing up the Bing scenario, why that sort of flipped the switch for me is that I, I got, I got, I end up learning through some very smart people, you know, uh, at Microsoft, at other companies, that there are definitely some scenarios like anomaly detection or just, you know, uh, 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 fraud, security, things of that nature, right? Where the outliers come into play. And because the outliers come into play, you actually do need to go look at most, if not all of that data, right? Or And there are certain mathematical algorithms that potentially allow us to shrink that space down to make, to make it easier to find the, the proverbial needle in the haystack. But the reality is that it still requires a lot of processing of data, or it still requires uh, something to help us shrink it down, right? And at least you know, in terms of answering the initial part of the question, uh, before I switch to devil advocacy here, uh, um, right? That's what flipped the switch for me, at least in, in in Bing, which was like, wow, this is. There are some scenarios where I don't get to go ahead and you know aggregate or sample my way out of them. I, I really need to go ahead and look at the the low level data somehow and make sense of it. Um, Uh, But now flipping the switch, you're absolutely right. There are plenty of people will claim that you have to have a you have to have a massive amount of data, and in the the reality is, it's more important to have clean data, and more important to understand what your data actually represents. Right? If you're collecting data just for the sake of collecting it but you have no mechanism to understand what you've collected or to make it clean, then most of your time is not spent on actually analyzing. Most of your time is actually spent on analyzing what your data is and actually cleaning it up, right? As opposed to actually making use of that data. So I, I do think what you're saying is absolutely true right? There needs to be some thought about what data you're trying to process. It's not just about, let me just go ahead and merge a bunch of stuff together. How how many times have we seen where, you know, like um, credit cards, applications, you know, you're free, whatever credit card comes in the mail, except they've got the wrong name for the wrong address for the wrong, uh, (coughs) wrong everything, right? Just it's because they simply didn't have clean data, right? So you're trying to you know, use this type of old school uh, mail to as a way to convince people to buy uh, to, to to purchase your credit card. Yet you can't even get their name right, or you can't get their address right, or their occupation right, right? So th- that's not very useful, right? And especially because you know whether it's you know trying to understand financial fraud, you're trying to actually have an accurate forecast of your sales, uh, right into personalized medicine, right? The accuracy of your data is crucial to allow you to actually have some form of predictive power.
2: And that's, uh, you know, almost every episode, uh, we always bring up uh, the topic of where can this go wrong? Where can data science, machine learning, even this massive data engineering toolkit you put together? I mean, the mail is an example, but are there any other areas either in your personal life or in your professional life where you have concerns about the state of the art of machine learning?
1: Well, I mean, the reality is my key concern when it comes to state of the art of machine learning is that we have far too many people that want to be data scientists, but either aren't interested or are not given enough time to actually understand what data science is about, right? I'm not saying, by the way, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that you have to be a machine learning algorithm expert, right? You don't need to necessarily be able to tell me what the math behind uh, this algorithm versus that algorithm. Uh, Frank, frank, honestly, I probably would do a pretty bad job of it too, right, at times. Um, But that doesn't mean I don't respect the math nor does it mean that I don't go ahead and go out of my way to learn it when I don't know it. Right. Um, I absolutely do. It, it's, it's, it's not that I don't think math the math is crucial. I just think that often more times than not, when you're applying machine learning algorithms, you're, you're a few steps away from it or, or many steps away, depending on where you are, but you're, you're not directly at the math and that's okay. I'm not saying you have to be that, but, but there's often that mistake that because you're away from the math, you don't need to understand it. Or you don't need to understand the implications. You know, um, even something as simple as distributions. I remember talking to various people about how they were trying to solve a particular problem, and they end up using what they thought was this cool, cool X algorithm. I'm not going to mention what it is because you know, don't want to reveal any customer names or anything like that. But they, they thought this was the coolest thing. But what ultimately they did is they, they didn't understand that that particular algorithm made it made an assumption that the data was uniformly distributed. Right. And so it's like you spent months on if you had just simply done a histogram of your data, realized it was normal it was Gaussian or normal distributed, but the algorithm you used was uniformly distributed. Right. So so you just wasted months because of this inherent misunderstanding of like of how that particular algorithm should be applied to your data. Right. And and so that's my this is this is the the recurring theme about why I say like understanding the math and then ultimately understanding your data, right? If you don't understand like how that particular column is being distributed, like the fact that like it's mostly nulls, okay, well then is it even real useful to you, right? Or maybe nulls are supposed to mean something. I don't know. Do do you know what that is, right? And may or may not you as the domain expert should know these things. Right. Uh, so there's a lot more of this blind application of an algorithm as opposed to actually understanding what it is. And then ultimately, time and time again, because that, that happens, there the, the results that you get, the predictions you get, are pretty far from the truth.
2: And when where does AutoML come in? And I know you speak on that topic, is that does that cause a risk item in this role of citizen data scientist regarding not having an understanding of the basic premise of prediction? Or is it an enabler allowing people to do quicker and better data science?
1: Both. The, the answer is ultimately it's both, right? Uh, the, the toolkit was created by some of our top RSAs at Databricks, uh, the AutoML toolkit from the Databricks Labs team. Um, the credit goes to them. I, I advocate for it, I help out a little bit, but I, I don't want to take credit just because credit is definitely due to other folks. Um, the fact is that even even in our own presentations, we call that out, right? It's, we, we do simplify things if you understand the algorithms. Uh, we give you the ability to go down into the details uh, and change every, almost every single configuration that you want, if you want to know the details. But just like you said, like everything else, it, there's always the risk that if you don't want to or don't have the time to understand what these algorithms are and what the, what their assumptions are and how the data your data looks, yeah, you're going to misinterpret. There's a very solid probability you're not going to necessarily understand the results of what you get.
0: I have a suspicion that Microsoft is probably um, the most under the radar incubator of AI talent today. Like, I, I don't know if a lot of people outside of the Seattle region knows what it does to develop that talent.
1: I agree with your assessments because even with all the ups and downs that Microsoft goes through, the reality is that one of it... There's two main strengths that it always has. One oh, uh, has traditionally have. I should put that. Sorry. Um, one is that it's always been able to be really good at integrating different systems together. Right. The the like if you look at Office, right, it's about integration of the different p- pieces of software component. Right. You know, Word, Excel, things that like PowerPoint, things of that nature. That nature. SQL Server, same idea. It was integration of integration services, reporting services, analysis services, and a database. All right, So. It's able to, to do that really well. And the other key strength it has is that it's able to, amazing enough, turn on a dime, even for a company of its size, and recognize, you know, our customers are telling this. So, all right, boom, we're going to need to turn, right? And so, what you've got here at Microsoft is a lot of folks who are spending the time to understand what the customers are going through. And spending their time to go ahead and actually make sure that they're up to speed, or then some, on AI talent, and, and that's part of the reason why there's Azure Databricks, right? Because there there was a, a massive partnership deal between us, Databricks and Microsoft, precisely because of the fact that we re, we recognize that we would help each other more so together than to you know than apart.
2: Is there any uh, closing kind of remarks you want to leave with the audience, you know, regarding you know, how to find you or what you, what, what you're um, working on next or anything else that you want to
1: share with us? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, if you want like to chat more, you're always more than welcome to tweet me directly at Denny Lee uh, at Denny Lee. Uh, I'm usually on there. Uh, you'll probably get a little bit too much Delta Lake stuff right now uh, for precisely that reason because. Um, if I'm not harping about uh, the need for everyone who's in the machine learning world to make sure they understand the math behind everything, uh, behind the algorithms they're playing with or what they're working with, then I'm going to harp about the data. And then hence I'm going to harp about Delta Lake. So that's, why, that's how I'll probably leave cool. it.
0: This is great. Perfect.
2: Thank you so much.